Thanks, Vicky, and good morning, everyone. Uh, can I make sure you make sure that you have your Bible open at that passage, please? Um, if it has popped closed, then it's page 267 and 8 in the church Bibles that you can find uh, nearby. When I come to church, I want to be uplifted and inspired. I want to hear a positive and optimistic message. I want to leave with a smile on my face and a spring in my step. Don't you? If I wanted to be made to think about sadness and loneliness and disappointment... I could have stayed at home (laughs) and watched past episodes of EastEnders. (laughs) And of course, as we have shared already this morning in a very uplifting uh, uh, section of, of praise and worship together, the gospel of Jesus does indeed offer unspeakable joy, surpassing love, and a peace that passes understanding. But that is not by way of a road of escapism, avoiding or denying or forgetting what life throws at us, but a path of realism, standing on the promises of God is, for for many of us, a long, hard lesson Many of you within the past five years have or are currently or during the next five years will or somebody you know and love has or is or will gone through deep trouble and will have been asking, where's God in all of this darkness? I've been preaching here at Holy Trinity for over 20 years now, and I estimate that I've presented several hundred sermons. The sentence that I'm now going to say to you is perhaps the hardest thing that I've ever ever said from the front of this church. Not hard because it's difficult to say, hard because it's easy to say. Not hard because it's hard for you to understand, but hard for me to know what you have or are or will be going through. So what I'm now about to say to you runs the danger of glibness. And it's this. God knows your past, present or future intense pain, nagging worry, bitter regret, secret shame, haunting fear, deep resentment. God knows. The question this morning is, does God care? Can, in other words, can God be trusted even in the dark?
we can go to a number of places in the Bible for this experience, for an exploration of this question. Some of the Psalms, for example. One or two other books. But we are at the moment in a little series in the beautiful book of Ruth. And this book explores that question too. It is a a truly beautiful story, the story of Ruth. It's a positive, optimistic, hopeful book, but not at the beginning. There's not much hope, not much sunshine in chapter 1. Last Sunday morning, our rector Richard took us through the first five verses, but I just want to briefly review the first five verses, where we see one person's life falling apart. Like the walls of Jerusalem, totally crumbled, wondering whether they could ever be rebuilt again. Ruth finds herself living under very dark skies in verses 1 to 5. For one thing, the times are chaotic. You see in verse 1 that this all happened in the days when judges ruled. Now, the book of Judges is the preceding book of the Bible, and these were indeed chaotic times. The refrain in the book of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound a bit to you like the individualism, individual morality of today's world? Feels like that a bit to me. Chaotic times. Another aspect of of Naomi's experience was that she and her family were living with material deprivation. Also in verse 1, there was a famine in the land. The land flowing with milk and honey. In Bethlehem, the name of which means house of bread, famine, lack of food, empty stomachs for her, her husband, and her two sickly sons. There was the darkness too, then, of domestic upheaval. They make the questionable decision to uproot from Bethlehem and emigrate to the land of Moab. Yes, only 50 miles away, but it might have been halfway across the world. The difference in culture, certainly in religion, and everything else. A dodgy decision not to trust in God and his gift of the promised land. But they do it anyway. And there's the upheaval that taking her family and uprooting and setting up home in Moab Uh, involved and then while in Moab the pain of multiple bereavement first her husband Elimelech and then those two sons who had married but now have died how do you think she felt as she stood at the grave first of her husband then her first son and then her second son neither of which had produced any children of her own. What a disgrace she would have felt in those days, in that land, in that culture. What a disgrace to have no fruit left from her womb. How bereaved, how lost, how lonely she felt to be on her home 
in a foreign land. To be a widow would be to be a beggar. Yes, she was living in days of darkness indeed. But then she hears some news, perhaps a traveler from, uh, uh, from Palestine, from, uh, from Israel, from uh, perhaps even her hometown of Bethlehem, comes through Moab and says, the famine is over, uh, the crops are growing again. And she, she takes the decision to go back to Bethlehem. And her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, accompany her. The famine is over, and they start on the road towards Bethlehem. She says to her two daughters-in-law, there's nothing in Bethlehem for you. That's not your country, that's not your land, that's not your birthplace. Your relatives uh, don't live there. Go back, for goodness sake. There's more hope for you to remarry, build a family, Um, uh, back in Moab go back and she pleads with them to go back Orpah gives in she kisses Naomi goodbye and goes back Ruth refuses to do so she clings to Naomi and she clings to her with these unforgettable words do you see them in uh, verse 16 Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, that is to say, where you lay your head, I will lay my head. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There, I will end my days. I will be with you, your people and your God. Unforgettably beautiful words of commitment. Not an easy decision at all. Naomi was right. Ruth stood more chance of remarrying, building a new life back in her, in her home of Moab. Her journey with Naomi to Bethlehem was a journey from the known to the unknown from security, relative security, to insecurity, from her gods to Naomi's god. In Bethlehem, Ruth would have no real prospect at all, except to share in Naomi's desolation and her lonely old age. But go, she must. And so verses 19 and 20, we find them, these two, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, coming home to Bethlehem. Naomi describes herself as bitter. The name Naomi means pleasant. But when she enters Bethlehem and the women of Bethlehem see her, their first question is, can this be Naomi? She's not only aged 10 years, but she looks so different. She looks so miserable, such a furrowed brow, such a frown on her face. Can this really be Naomi? The Naomi we used to know, so full of the care, so full of the joys of spring. And Naomi says, "Don't call me Naomi anymore," which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt 
bitterly with me. She says, I left Bethlehem, I left my home full, certainly not full of food, there's a famine, but full of herself, full of hope, full of her family. I'm returning, she said in verse 21, empty. Um, just notice for a moment, when she says I'm coming back empty, she's forgotten something, hasn't she? <laughs> you spotted it. But she is a very unhappy woman. She says in verse 13, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. In verse 20 and following, the, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She's not a happy lady. And she's not happy with the God who seems to have got her, or at least allowed her, into this position. Into this position. And if I ask you the question, where is Naomi's deliverance? You know the answer, don't you? standing right next to her. Ruth will be God's means of deliverance. And she'd almost forgotten about Ruth. When Ruth says, I'm going with you back to Bethlehem, she doesn't say, oh, that's great, thank you. She just stops objecting and says, well, if, if that's what you're going to do, that's what you're going to do. The women in Bethlehem don't seem to acknowledge Ruth at all. They say, who's this? Could this be Naomi? They don't say, and who's that with you? She seems almost invisible. But Ruth is God's means, will become God's means of deliverance for Naomi. And a vital link in the chain of God's deliverance for the whole world. We'll discover that more clearly as we go through these four wonderful chapters. And the narrator, whoever it is, of Ruth, just ends the chapter with a knowing wink. Having stressed that it's the two of them, Naomi and Ruth, that go back to Bethlehem, even though Ruth seems almost forgotten. The narrator gives us a little knowing wink at the end of the chapter. They arrive in Bethlehem as the barley barley harvest was beginning. A glimmer of hope, I think. What are the takeaways for us today? For what concerning what we have or are or may yet go through in terms of our own days of darkness? Well, first is the reminder that others, such as Naomi and others too, have been down this road before you. You are not alone. Psalmists too cry out, where is God in this? And didn't our Lord himself hang on the cross and cry out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Even our Saviour, who knew incomprehensible 
fellowship with his father, knew what it was to feel forsaken in his moment of greatest need. Others have trodden the road of darkness before you. Second, we learn from this story, I think, that God can work with imperfect faith. Naomi's faith is not strong. It is not perfect. It is a flawed faith. She was, it seems, party with her husband Elimelech to a faulty decision to leave Bethlehem and go to some other country that didn't recognize the one true and living God in the first place. A faulty decision and having to live with the consequences of that over these ten painful years. Uh, Naomi had muddled beliefs about God. On the one hand, she is uttering a wonderful blessing to her daughters-in-law in in verses, excuse me, uh, 8 and 9. May the Lord, and you know that whenever you see the word Lord written in small caps in the Bible, it's referring to the word Yahweh, God's personal, the name of the one true and living God. But then... By the time she reaches verse 15, she is sending Ruth and and Orpah back to her people and her gods, chief of whom, amongst the gods of Moab, was Chemosh, who required the sacrifice of children, of all things. Muddled beliefs about God and gods and true and living and loving gods and false idolatrous gods. She had muddled beliefs. And, so, and she ended up being a bitter old woman. Not my words, hers. She said, I'm too old to bear more children. My womb is empty now. I'm postmenopausal. And I'm bitter. Her words, not mine. But her faith, although flawed, was real. Real enough that though she complains about God... She does not deny him. Can we grasp onto that? Though she complains about God, and no doubt complains to God, she does not deny God. She doesn't say, God has nothing to do with this. God doesn't know. God doesn't realize. There can't be a God. She turns, as it were, to God and says, why? There is more faith in arguing with God than in denying him in the first place. If you find yourself this morning unhappy with God, then start from that point and tell him so. You won't be the first or the last. And her faith, you see, is real enough also to have made some kind of deep impression on Ruth. Ruth says, I'm going with you to your home your people, and your God. Ruth had seen something in Naomi's flawed faith that may may have been very flawed, but was real, and that was what counted most. Thirdly, we learn from this passage to take the the long view. Ten long years of darkness. And for some others of God's children, it's longer than that when God seems to be hiding behind a dark, dark cloud. In Psalm 73, Asaph 
ponders why wicked people seem to flourish when godly people seem so often to be given such a rough deal. Till, he says, until, in verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. And then later on still, Asaph finds rest for his soul in verse 25 of Psalm 73, when he declares, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you? And remember Jesus too took the long view, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Fourthly and lastly, above all else in dark days, cling to your saviour, because there is only one, there is no other. Just as Naomi clung in her days of darkness to her God, and in the end was blessed more richly than she can have ever thought or imagined. So we can too. In John, John's Gospel chapter 6, Jesus teaches about the bread of life. And many could not stomach, almost literally, that teaching. And we read that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, do you want to leave too? Simon Peter, you know, Simon blustering, open your mouth and put your foot in it. Speak first and then think later. Simon Peter speaks up and replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Cling to God in days of darkness. Through thick and thin through doubt and confidence, through unhappiness and joy, in sickness as well as in health, in life and in death, and God will not fail you. He has promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you understand better, far better than I can ever understand what any of us has or may be currently or maybe some stage in the future may be going through. Forgive my glibness in assuming that I can know or understand. May others pray for me in dark days that I may have to experience as I pray now for others. That you would lead us, guide us, teach us, comfort us. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of glory. Thanks be to God. Amen.